0: Today on Newsable, in the last week alone, three people have been killed in house fires around the country. How can we keep ourselves safe? Plus the boom in Auckland job applications, and I present to you some of the wackiest laws from around the world. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. There's some offensive language in this one, mostly in the place of exasperated size. (sighs) So it gets a little salty. But, not too bad. You've been warned. Flat inspections can be uncomfortable. Cheryl? Ah! Just a moment. Right, you're not allowed to record me and you're not allowed to take photos. But not normally this uncomfortable.
1: No, I am allowed to record you. I am allowed to record you, Cheryl. No, you're not. The police have told me to record everything. No, they don't know
0: the law. That's Cheryl Scott. She's a landlord. And she really objects to having a phone camera pointed at her while doing an inspection of her property.
1: They do, they're the police.
0: And the guy holding that phone camera? His name is Ollie Wrench. And he's a tenant at Cheryl's flat, a three-bedroom house in Wellington. The video dates from June this year, and it was the first time Ollie had filmed his own landlord. But you see, Cheryl inspects her flats fairly often, at least once a month. It's not your business what I'm doing, all right? It is actually, it is exactly my business. So over the past six months, Ollie's captured quite a few of these videos and things have got rather tense.
1: Do not do that! I'll save you if you lose Fuck it. off! Don't of fucking mind. touch me! Of-
0: so how did we get here? Well, it's a story that goes back decades with lots of twists and turns along the way. A story of how one person has used her power to lord it over those connected to her. It's a tale of interminable phone calls, rogue coat hangers, and a toilet bowl photograph. There are court cases, unpaid bills, and long handwritten letters. And it's a story whose ending has yet to be written. Tēnā koutou katoa, nau mai Hoki mai ki True Story. Greetings and welcome back to True Story. Ko Ijen Maho, Ko Adam Daringahau. Kia ora. Today, for our fifth story, we're doing things a little bit differently. This situation we've been telling you about, the one with Ollie the tenant and Cheryl the landlord, it's a story that our colleague and fellow stuff reporter Ethan Teora has been looking into for the past few months. So, ta-da! We're going to get Ethan to tell the story. Kia ora, Ethan. Kia ora, Eugene. Kia ora, Adam. It's a cracking story. So how about we let you get on with it? Just before you do, though, it really feels like we need the theme tune up again. About here. All right, there you go. Can't let the formality slip. Hell no. True story number five.
2: Cheryl Scott? versus
3: the people. Cheryl Scott is a compulsive talker. About herself, often. Things you might not necessarily want to know about your landlord. Intimate details about her love life, for example. Long stories about tradespeople or her late father and all the houses he owned. It was often the first thing
1: people told me about her, the talking. Here's Ollie. You haven't met Cheryl yet, but if she wants to talk to you, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about.
4: She talked to people endlessly for hours, and that is her main attribute uh, is talking.
3: That's scary. We'll come back to him later. Both of them told me that once Cheryl got going, you were stuck trying to escape was like trying to resist gravity. A former tenant of hers made this comparison. She's like a, quote, black hole into which time disappears. Here's a specific example. One day, Cheryl got a tenant of hers on the phone to rearrange a flat inspection. It was about 11 a.m., a cloudless weekend day. The guy had just put on a load of washing. More than an hour later, morning had given way to afternoon, and he still couldn't extricate himself from the call. Cheryl just kept on talking. Almost as infamous as her talking, though, is when she doesn't. Maybe she had bombarded you with lengthy handwritten letters, or phone call after phone call for weeks, and yes, talked at you for hours, but now she was impossible to contact. There are a couple of ways to contact Cheryl. She's got a landline, but she screens her calls. And if your number comes up, and you're the person she's avoiding, then she won't pick up. Call from an unknown number, and she'll hang up. Knock on her front door, and you might get trespassed. If you hadn't already guessed it, Cheryl Scott doesn't use email. In fact, according to people who know her, she scrupulously avoids computers and the internet altogether. It's become part of her law. That makes me think of another story about Cheryl. And trust me, there are hundreds of stories. A number of property management companies have effectively blacklisted her, owing to insistent, aggressive communications. I was told she's gone 50 kilometers out of Wellington to find someone willing to advertise her rentals. It made me wonder, if Cheryl wasn't online, and property managers wanted nothing to do with her,
1: how exactly does she find new tenants? Right, so the previous tenants had actually advertised this place on Facebook. That's Ollie again, the guy from the recordings.
3: Last October, him and his friend Scott
1: were looking for a flat. No one was really interested in two sort of 30-year-old guys or anything like that, and then this one came up.
3: A free bedroom flat in Newlands, with a view looking down over this beautiful gorge and to
1: Wellington's harbour. Seven fifty a week. Messaged, had everything we were looking for, had a garage, had three bedrooms, nice area, price was right. We shot the guy a message and um, we came and saw the place and it all seemed to work out.
3: The previous tenant, the guy Ollie shot a message, was ending his lease early. And he didn't give you a heads up about Cheryl, did he?
1: <laughs> nah, no <nah> he didn't. <laughs> Thanks bro.
3: <laughs> They've since become friendly, Ollie and the guy, even working together on a couple of jobs. They're both tradies. He still didn't warn him, though.
1: In all fairness, like, I probably wouldn't have if I was in his position as well. I remember asking him what the landlord was like, and he just said, oh, nah, she's all right, she's just old. (laughs) So thanks, bro. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's actually turned into a mate now, so we do a bit of
3: work together. Often when I contacted people about Cheryl, they were surprised, but not necessarily that I'd contacted them. They were shocked that this was still happening all these years later. They tended to overestimate her age, often by as much as 10 or 15 years. She's 74, by the way. And they would resort to predictable comparisons when describing her. Imagine your grandma, they would say.
1: That's what she looks like. Like a little old grandma. Maybe 5 foot 2 or something, 5 foot 3. She's quite short.
3: There were some inspired comparisons too, like this one. She looks like your grandma dressed in your granddad's clothes. Yeah, I don't really know how to describe it, really, like... One guy said she dressed like the main character from Super Supergran. I didn't get the reference at the time, I had to look it up later. It's a children's TV show from the 1980s, about a grandmother with superpowers. She wears a tweed skirt and blazer, a tartan scarf, and matching Tomashanter hat, which is a bit like a woollen newsboy cap, except with a bobble on the crown. You get the idea. Everyone says Cheryl is retired, she's told them as much, and they assume she lives off the rental income from her properties. On the title for one of those homes dating from the early 1980s, her occupation is listed as real estate agent. As recently as the early 2000s, she ran a dress shop on the main road of Kandala, a well-to-do suburb in Northern Wellington, where she also lives. Tenants I spoke to suggested she plays bridge socially a few times a week. And even though she seems to be retired, she often carries around a briefcase, sometimes two of them, like a lawyer on her way to court for a never-ending trial.
1: Always carrying around folders of papers, always, 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 always writing, always. And that's what it was like
3: the first time Ollie met Cheryl, an eccentric woman with a briefcase and time to kill.
1: I met her here and it was about five o'clock at night
3: it was supposed to be a pit stop. Meet the landlord, sign the lease. At the time, Ollie didn't know
1: about Cheryl. She was telling me about all the properties that she's, she owns and that she's been doing it long enough, she doesn't need a property manager, like she can write up a contract. But
3: soon would know, more than he ever wanted to know
1: about it. I feel like I got a whole bag of life story and she got half of mine on the night. The self-disclosures kept coming. ...for hours. Left, like, she'll, she'll, she'll talk him. about her ex-partner. He about what? 30 properly was a the joke. They were sleeping in different parts of the house. It was dizzying. It was, so it's very hard to kind of follow what's being talked about, really, because nothing's being talked about. And I didn't leave here until about 11 o'clock. And all that time... ...my, dad, yeah, uh, my girlfriend was actually waiting in the car. ...for six whole hours. And, and I, I guess the assumption
3: is this is going to take maybe an hour, but you must be texting her and saying... Uh, no, my
1: phone was in the car. I came out and I was just like what the fuck
3: I want to pause briefly here to consider one of the things Ollie mentioned that Cheryl had sizable interests in property left to her by her father a lot of people told me this evidently it's a story Cheryl tells a lot of people the size of the inheritance tends to vary 30 properties often sometimes 15 or 20 most of it was in Wellington, or the Wairarapa, or Levin. Some of it was down south in Christchurch or Timaru, a combination of residential and commercial property. I looked into it, of course. The name Cheryl Scott shows up on four property titles. Three of them are residential houses in Wellington, two of them rentals, one of them her own home. There's also a commercial property in Levin. There is another rental in Petone. a second commercial building in Miramar both sold in the early 2000s. That doesn't mean the story isn't true. Ownership of property can be notoriously difficult to trace. It can be held in opaque entities or trusts rather than under a person's name. And if properties were sold before the mid-1990s, it's likely they wouldn't show up on digital records. Anyway, when Ollie looks back on that first meeting now, all six hours of it, it seems like a huge red flag. But at the time, he didn't see that.
1: I felt that she had maybe been taken advantage of by a previous tenant or two, and she was kind of explaining that to me. He even felt sorry for her. Know, I'm polite. She's kind of old. I was just kind of like, oh, maybe she's just lonely. So I kind of just, you know, I mean, we needed the house. So, like, we kind of just put up with her, I guess. Like, you know. It was
3: just... maybe even a little well, reassuring. Like,
1: although she was old and waffled. She seemed thorough, so it kind of put my mind at ease a little bit. Does that make sense?
3: So they moved in. Um, and for a while, things were pretty much normal. And, um, Though Cheryl did show up at Ollie's workplace a couple of times. i
1: you sorry, you here, and I'd have to disappear out the back, and then she'd waste their time for 30 minutes. Something like
3: but otherwise, normal. Until things started to get odd. About a month into Ollie and his flatmate Scott's tenancy, there was a knock at the door. Scott was actually in the shower. It was Cheryl. I'm here for the inspection. She had left a note about the inspection the week before, she told them, in the letterbox. It must have blown away. Oh well. His flatmate Scott stood there, towel around his waist. Like, uh, what? They decided it wasn't really worth kicking up a fuss. The house is tidy, I mean,
1: so you know, whatever.
3: Next month, the note didn't blow away. When we found the note taped to the door. You heard that right. Taped to the door. The note was handwritten inside a transparent A4 file. More like a letter than a note. Including names and addresses, a formal salutation and sign-off. It notified the date of Cheryl's next inspection.
1: And, yeah, it all just kind of snowballed from there.
3: Pretty soon the letters were arriving every week. At the height of the one-sided correspondence, Ollie estimates they were getting letters every four days. Generally there was an extra notation at the top. Hand-delivered it read, with the exact time of delivery like court papers being served. Here's how it would typically go.
1: What'll happen is um, she will drop us a letter advising us that the inspection is going to take place on a certain date, and then she'll drop us a note again reminding us of that inspection. That's three visits if you're keeping count, the third visit being the actual inspection. What'll happen is she'll, she'll come in and she'll just start taking photos of everything with an old point-and-shoot camera because she takes photos of things like the router on the wall which she's taking photos of every single inspection
3: that sound it's the camera turning on a bit like a mallet running over a xylophone or an old computer booting up
1: the light switches um bits of the carpet which just look like normal carpet. That was
0: put in before you were
1: here. She'll also take photos of things like inside the pantry, inside the oven, under the sink, the rain food.
0: to have photos of those sort of things. If you don't
1: should. have them already?
3: There's always something wrong. Usually within a few days she'll drop us another note. This time with a list of issues that needed fixing and notice of a follow-up visit. I'll be back on this date to check. So for one inspection, five visits. And then the cycle just repeats. I have to say,
1: maybe 15 or 16 times. It's a lot.
3: But it's a little different each
1: time. Nothing will have changed in the house, but on the second inspection, there's a problem with something.
3: I should mention too, these letters aren't casual or easygoing in tone, nor are they brief. They are written in a strident, legalistic language often
1: running to five or six numbered pages. Really, really long, hard to follow. We're not meeting our obligations as tenants. We need to read up on the Residential Tenancy Act and RTA uses a lot of abbreviations or acronyms, synonyms, whatever they are.
3: The letter that comes after an inspection is effectively a legal notice, known as a 14-day notice to remedy. It gives the tenants two weeks to fix perceived problems at the flat. And those problems, well, they always seem sort of minor.
1: Oh, there were leaves on the lawn. Or she might say that the range hood's dirty and you've got to clean it, or she might say the oven needs to be commercially cleaned, or things like you no know, coat hangers on curtain rails, smooth shovels off the back fans. The most recent notice mentions, quote, very
3: visible poo on the toilet bowl.
1: Sure. really taking a photo in the toilet? <laughs> As the months and inspections rolled on, they started to take a toll. I actually started playing on my mental health pretty bad. Eh? Like I was stressed out like all the time. Like just, just I was just fuming the whole time. But
3: then, after one inspection, the letters along with the lease agreement disappeared from the place where Ollie
1: and Scott had left them piled up. And they weren't left in an obvious spot either. That made Ollie suspicious. I got the feeling that she's probably looking through our stuff if we're not here, which is when I decided to be here. Um, for the inspections. And often that meant taking the whole day off work. Which can be really frustrating. Like last time, she turned up at 4.45, and I've been here since eight, so.
3: Sometime between the third and fourth cycle of inspections, the penny dropped. I'd spoken to a lot of the neighbors. One
1: day, a passer-by walking a dog stopped for a chat. And then he goes, oh mate, your landlord, don't she, we used to live here, just make sure that, you know, you cross your T's and dot your I's, which doesn't fill you with confidence, you know. Eventually, Ollie called Tenancy Services to
3: ask for advice. The guy recommended Ollie issue a 14-day notice of his own for breach of quiet enjoyment. Quiet enjoyment refers to a person's right to enjoy peace and quiet in their own home, even if they rent that home. It basically means your landlord can't harass you. So Ollie decided to
1: do it. Cheryl doesn't have an email. And that meant taking a leaf out of Cheryl's book and dropping off a letter. So she doesn't have a letterbox either, so everything has to be hand delivered or courier signed.
3: That's Ollie on the day he delivered the notice. He took two witnesses with him and filmed the whole thing. That muffled voice coming from inside the house it's Cheryl's. Go away, go away, she says. I'm in my dressing gown. She doesn't open the door, so Ollie tucks the letter inside while his witnesses film him doing it as proof. A few weeks ago, I made a visit to Cheryl's house myself. Let's do it. I wanted to ask her about the allegations, hear her side of the story. Just in case she wasn't there, I'd written a letter. Mine was typewritten, by the way. taped, taped to the letterbox, it says, please put any mail under the red brick. Taped across Cheryl's letterbox, inside a transparent A4 file, is a handwritten note. Please put any mail, etc., under the red brick, as the actual letterbox is not functioning. Compartment on the left with a red brick. The red brick in the note is styled as a proper noun, each word capitalized, and indeed there is a red brick inside an open compartment to the left of the letterbox, exposed to the street and the elements. I wasn't convinced the mail would be safe there. Anyway, I knocked on the door. Coming up to a gate. It's behind a gate and down some steps, snaking behind the garage. There is a lot of of stuff here. A lot of clutter coming down these steps to the front door. She wasn't home. I left the note under the red brick. suppose that's that. Oh man, that's that's anticlimactic. Ollie, on the other hand, after he dropped off his letter about the breach of quiet enjoyment,
1: he got an immediate response. Firstly, denial. She just claimed that I put a blank piece of A4 paper in her door. Then, retaliation. I received a trespass notice in the mail from her property. Then it was like, no, now you are just making it difficult to have any kind of communication with you at all.
3: It was then that Ollie, who was already missing work to attend the inspections,
1: started filming them. And that's when things really, really deteriorated. <laughs> just a No, you can just keep it Excuse open. Excuse me. You can just keep it open, don't Stop touch me. me. Don't and please. then she left and then I got a visit from the police. Ollie says the
3: police were sympathetic, and told him he should continue filming the inspections.
1: Anyway, the police told me to video everything, so I have been videoing everything. But
3: do you have any sense what you were accused of, like what she claimed happened, that sort of thing, from talking
1: to the cops? She said that I tried to smash the windows of her car when she was leaving.
3: Ollie shared the full video with me. It's about 20 minutes long. At times, it's pretty uncomfortable to watch. Ollie baits Cheryl while she does her inspection.
1: Take us to the tribunal, make it happen. Don't challenge me. Make it happen Cheryl.
3: He'll tell me later that he isn't proud of some moments in the video. Cheryl would go on to describe his behavior as threatening. In another six page letter delivered days later to the flat, she wrote about being, quote, extremely concerned for her own safety, unquote. She calls Ollie violent and threatening and says he talked somewhat continuously the interaction ended with ollie hitting the passenger window quote as hard as he could unquote
1: which i didn't and i had a video evidence of her leaving and driving away
3: the video does show cheryl getting into her car but it cuts out at the end before she can drive away and in the last few seconds ollie approaches the car so i asked him about it but you didn't like hit the bonnet of your car, or like, I don't know, there was nothing that happened after that cut out, basically. And he denied it again.
1: No, were just yelled at each other a bit more.
3: In case it isn't clear, he said they just yelled at each other a bit more. He goes on to say that he wanted to hit the car, but swears he didn't. After the police visit, Ollie was exasperated. He turned back to the place where it all began. Facebook.
1: Put up this post, um... Out of anger, more than anything, just kind of like, oh man, I can't be the only person who's been through this. And then it was just like opening the floodgates. I got contacted by ex-tenants, ex-neighbours, tradesmen, so many people. Like, they've come off second best and everyone felt helpless. So
3: yeah, it's not just tenants Cheryl has been clashing with. I was about to discover the vast array of people she'd been in disputes with. And for how long? That's coming up.
0: Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband.
3: That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret.
0: In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth Unless
3: you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely.
0: Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers? You don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, it's just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The human race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives... To create a life, I feel like I nearly missed out, and I got to do it, and so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz/slash/the-human-race, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate. Welcome back. So. Where are we at with this one? Well, Adam, our stuff colleague Ethan Torda to has been telling us about Ollie and his flatmate Scott, who've been having a hard time at their rental. That's right, Eugene. Ten points for listening closely. And as you probably also know, more specifically, they've had a problem with their landlord. Cheryl Scott! Correct, Cheryl Scott. At first, they just thought she was a bit eccentric, a little lonely. But as time went on, things have got sinister. She's done, like, how many inspections over the past 12 months? Twenty? Twenty? something like that, and she's accused Ollie and Scott of not meeting their obligations as tenants for things like unraked leaves on the lawn or leaving a coat hanger on a curtain railing. And it turns out they're not the first renters to go through this. Let's get back to Ethan and find out just how deep the
3: rabbit hole goes. Cheryl Scott doesn't use the internet. But that doesn't mean there are no traces of her online. When I Google Cheryl Scott NZ there are a few warning signs. Go ahead, try it for yourself. When I scroll to the bottom of the page and look under related searches, it seems pretty normal at first. Cheryl Scott Wellington. Cheryl Scott Wellington Landlord. But then, Tenancy Services Contact. Tenancy Tribunal Contact. Yeah, ominous. And there's more. The very first search result links through to a PDF a tenancy tribunal order from March 2017. It's brief, about a page and a half. It doesn't go into the substance of the dispute. The adjudicator sets a new date, asks for evidence to be resubmitted in the meantime. There's this, though, quote, The landlord has filed a cross-application, which includes some 148 handwritten pages. Unquote. You heard that right. 148 pages of handwritten evidence, submitted by Cheryl. The adjudicator asked her to resubmit no more than, quote, 10 typewritten single-sided pages, unquote. There's one other relevant search result under the title, Scott versus Here, I'm withholding the name of the tenant. It's from 2018 and involves a different group of tenants. Cheryl appeals an earlier decision where the tribunal awarded exemplary damages to the renters. The original tenancy ended in early 2014. That means the dispute has taken more than four years to resolve. And what are the damages for? Breaches of quiet enjoyment. So I contacted the Wellington Tenancy Tribunal and asked them for any decisions and orders they had involving Cheryl Scott. A couple of weeks later, the registrar came back to me with more than 200 pages, across nine different tenancies, in just two flats, most of them during a seven-year period. And those orders brought into focus a pattern of behaviour. A pattern that played out, also, in the hearings.
0: Many messages from the landlord were
4: unnecessarily the in the Elizabeth tribunal as challenged. Miss Scott pages. accuses
3: me variously of bias,
0: at times carried messages, a litigious and accusatory... Miss Scott also American appeared and to be... Not just that I
4: must the the pages.
3: And then I started contacting tenants.
4: There's having a bad landlord and then there's having Cheryl Scott as your landlord. Once she starts... <laughs>
2: You can't get rid of, rid of her for an hour.
4: She accused us of conspiring with the power company. So and she just made us feel anxious living there. Like it, it was. Oh, he thought, how
2: do you know that? She if up, you haven't been in the house.
4: Just yelling at us on our door really um, nice so to go to hospital and get our medication.
2: It was really
3: cold. It wasn't and shoulders. So
4: taking us um, to uh, I'm talking yeah. two yeah, hours plus. Really
3: sums it up. And that wasn't all. There's something just fundamentally wrong with the way that she treats people and uses the court system. Like, Why is no one actually looking at this? This is like her thing, right? This is what she does.
2: I know she's been in the tenancy tribunal system since it was set up because I remember her saying that she was there when it was established. Um, She was saying to the judge or the registrar that she'd been um, attending since its inception in 1986, I think it was.
3: The tenancy tribunal started in 1987. However, decisions and orders dating before 2011 have been destroyed. There are references, in the existing paperwork I do have, to several cases involving Cheryl from the 2000s. But it's impossible to know just how many tenants there might be. But it isn't just tenants who've had run-ins with Cheryl. Ollie mentioned that um, that Cheryl uh, perhaps owed you some money for some, for some work on the house. Yes,
4: yep, 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 no, that's uh, that's true, um, along with many other people that she owes money. I've spent, it's two years, next month, we've spent trying to recover $12,000 for the work we did on Ollie's rental.
3: Gary Ledbury is a builder in Wellington, owner of the small namesake operation Lead Builders Limited. He was first approached by Cheryl back in 2020, just after the first COVID lockdown. You sort of
4: felt sorry for her because, you know, um, COVID had been around, you know, it had come through, it had delayed her renovation on on a rental property. She waffled on for quite a while on the phone.
3: Sound familiar?
4: Hey, we can help you out, you know,
3: we're looking for a a fill-in job. Cheryl wanted someone to finish a bathroom renovation that had stalled after the lockdown. It was a small job, less than $30,000 though it kept on expanding. The job grew after about the third week of us being there to replace... Cheryl wanted high-end materials, expensive finishings. It was just after lockdown, so times were tough. Finances were not good. Gary insisted on being paid a deposit up front, about $11,500. There was a little bit of negativity against that. But she paid the deposit, and so they started the work. Gary didn't need to be on site a whole lot himself maybe four days out of the eight weeks. He worked with a lot of subcontractors. Painters, plasterers, electrician, plumber. Pretty soon, he started hearing stories from the guys. She annoyed people. She they told him Cheryl would turn up to the house every day, and she wasn't just a
4: passive observer. She talked to people endlessly for hours, and that is her main attribute, uh, is talking.
3: It wasn't just visits. There were
4: phone calls. Lots of I didn't need to ring her because she rang me every day. Probably a minimum of 50 times. And this would be every day, either on the phone or on site. The phone calls got kind of weird and personal. I know where she lived, every person that's been through her house and given her issues. He started to impose a time limit. So, Cheryl, you have five minutes to tell me what's going on, because I need to go. But a few weeks
3: into the job, Cheryl paid a second deposit. And so, things seemed like they would be fine. We've already started the job, so we're committed, you've got to carry on. The job took about eight weeks in total. A bit longer than expected, the weather was miserable, so the paint took longer to dry, that sort of thing. When the work was done, Gary sent through his invoice. There was about $11,000 remaining on the bill at that stage. And I submitted my bill
4: to her, which you have to hand deliver because um, she has no email, no cell phone.
3: And then... Silence.
2: An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated.
3: The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune.
0: If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more you also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I rang her. Uh, no, no answer to the, to the phone. Left a message saying, is there a problem? Uh, no response. Rang the next day. But he didn't hear back. And he didn't get paid. I went down to the house the first time, knocked on the door. No answer. My tone changed because I was now frustrated. Someone that rang you 40 times would
3: not answer the phone. He visited the house again, except this time he wasn't the only caller. There was another tradesman at the door, a roofer. And he was banging on the door at 7.30 in the morning looking for money. Gary doesn't remember the guy's name, but I tracked him down. Oh, hi there. This is Ethan order. I'm a reporter at the Dominion Post. How
1: are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good.
3: There was two of them, actually.
1: Yeah, mate, go on. I just got my business partner here and I've got you on speaker. Does the name Cheryl Scott ring any bells? No, no, yeah, so Cheryl Scott, yeah, we're, yeah, there's heaps of people she's ripped off, mate, and we're one of them. That's Wilson. We've got handwritten letters from her, like, with, like, 50 pages of handwritten letters. They're in my bin in my office now.
3: And that's Nick. Wilson McKay and Nick Brenner are the co-directors of Wellington Long Run Roofing. Cheryl approached them on the street. I
1: don't have a computer, and so you kind of feel sorry for these guys sometimes.
3: Anyone else getting deja vu?
1: Okay, maybe she's just wanting to get some work done, and people are really busy. Suffice it
3: to say, the same thing that happened with Gary happened with Nick and Wilson. The job was smaller, so the debt is smaller, about $2,500. But the pattern of behaviour is the same. Eventually, they decided to take her to the disputes tribunal. You need the
1: money to operate, it's not like we've got huge fucking cash reserves, you know? Then,
3: Cheryl counterclaimed for $4,500. That counterclaim is long and difficult to unpick. But essentially, Cheryl believed long-run roofing had breached the Fair Trading Act. In various ways too, about eight of them, including an unreasonable quote and unreasonable delays.
1: So not only does she not want to pay us, she wants us to pay her four and a
3: half grand. Gary, the builder, who says he's owed $11,000, decided to take her to the disputes tribunal as well. She beat me by two days. Except she got in first. The fight began for
4: 26 months, basically. She will never pay you unless you fight tooth and nail.
3: And being in a courtroom with Cheryl Scott can be an interesting experience. Here's Gary talking about the first moments of the original hearing he attended with her.
4: And we went inside and sat down. There happened to be a security guard in
3: the room as well. As Gary remembers it, Cheryl asked for the security guard to be placed between him and her. Then the adjudicator responded.
4: Miss Scott, the security guard is not here for you, he's here for me.
3: Cheryl had threatened the adjudicator at a previous hearing, Gary says. So every time that she is there... A security guard has to be present. Wilson and Nick, the roofers, have stories as well.
1: Yeah, she like got herself so wound up. She was jumping and screaming and yelling and like shaking her hands. It's like she's like a firecracker about to explode, you know? That's Wilson. It's, um, yeah. She like froths like, like, at the mouth. Like she, and that's Nick. Incredible, like, she, like, yeah. Yeah, you can see her like, eyeballs like, almost shaking.
3: And there were other bizarre stories. According to Alan, who we'll hear more from soon, Cheryl insisted he leave during recess because she wasn't accustomed to eating meals with someone else in the room. According to the roofers Nick and Wilson, she would complain about seating arrangements or hats being worn in the courtroom. I'm aware of nine disputes involving tradesmen, with amounts ranging from $328 to almost $15,000. One guy pursued Cheryl through the courts for about five years before he got paid. Inevitably, the tribunal finds in favour of the tradesmen and they still don't get paid. As in the case of Gary, the builder, he won the case. Then we get a month later that she's appealed. Gary keeps all the paperwork from the case in a folder. I subsequently
4: won that one um, and I was awarded the money again and of course Cheryl appealed.
3: He estimates there are about a thousand pages inside. We've now been five times.
4: Then we're into 21 by now. So at the end of 21, the fifth mediation, and I won again for the third time. And now she's appealed the whole decision.
3: And he's still waiting to get paid. It's the same for Nick and Wilson, the roofers. They've won twice, and Cheryl still hasn't paid them. She's now in the process of appealing for a second time. I've heard rumours of other disputes involving Cheryl going back to the 1980s, but the earliest case I was able to confirm dates from 2008. I've been looking into uh, Cheryl Scott. Maybe that name immediately rings some bells for you. (laughs) Um, Okay, I've got the right person then. Um, (laughs) Alan Dyer was a joiner for about five decades. He's been retired now for over 10 years. But one of his last jobs was for Cheryl Scott. Alan didn't want to talk about the case on the record.
2: I don't want to be involved with any litigation with her ever again in my life.
3: I won't go into all the details.
2: And I haven't got a lot of life left.
3: Except to say that he won, and the dispute followed a similar pattern to others. But then, years after the dispute, Alan put together some odd coincidences. He'd had run-ins with the Scott family, he realised, going back some 60 years. He told me about them as a kind of rambling origin story. Cheryl Scott learning to be a landlord at her father's knee. Alan was tramping in the Orongoronga Valley sometime in the 1950s.
2: That's when I first met Jack Scott, Cheryl's father.
3: It was a blisteringly cold night, and he sought shelter.
2: And the huts were numbered, and it was number one hut.
3: This detail sticks in his mind, because he realised his friend was embroiled in a long dispute with the owner of the hut and their host for the night. This guy called Jack Scott. He even drank whiskey with Jack.
2: I can't stand whiskey.
3: (laughs) And who should be there? Cheryl. Cheryl.
2: And there was this girl standing there by the fireplace and she just stood there and she just stared. She was just staring at us.
3: Alan ended up with pneumonia.
2: And had to be carried out of the as so That's another big, long story.
3: Years later, he would do some work for Jack Scott, installing the garage door on the house where Cheryl lives today. Another strange coincidence.
2: And she used to... Pratt along all the time but that she learnt her business acrimony by standing in her father's office listening. <laughs> so, have you ever met Cheryl Scott?
3: I haven't yet. Oh. Mm. Mm. Of course, it wasn't through lack of trying. There was that letter I told you about earlier. I followed up with a second knock on the door and another letter a few weeks later. Cheryl hasn't written back to either of them, but before the letters, I
1: tried her on the phone. You haven't met Cheryl yet, but if, you, if she wants to talk to you, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about.
2: Oh, hello? hello.
3: Kia ora. Hi. I- Kia ora Cheryl. It's it's Ethan to order here. I'm a journalist at Stuff. How are you?
2: Uh, okay, I'll turn my page over and write your name down. How do you spell your name?
3: Uh, so it's E T H A N.
2: Okay, because someone of that name almost ring me yesterday. Now you're at Stuff. What work do you do at Stuff, please?
3: I'm a I'm a journalist. I am a oh,
2: reporter. In what era? What? Yeah, I'm not stupid. What specifically? Where's your area?
3: Oh, I report on housing, specifically.
2: Yes, and why are you referring to me?
3: I've called you because I've been, I've been talking to uh, tenants of yours, both past and present, and... Uh, yeah,
2: oh, I've got no comment. Thank you. Goodbye.
3: Just as we were wrapping up this episode, a package arrived at the newsroom, addressed to me, from Cheryl Scott. I came into work today, it's, it's, uh, November 30, we're about a week before the story comes out, um, and there's a letter. Um, it's addressed to me, and on the back it says, C. Scott, and then her address. So let's, let's open it and find out what's in here. So, um, what this is is, um, it's addressed to me, Ethan Te staff stuffed journalist. A trespass notice. If Cheryl wants to talk to you, you'll know. That's what Ollie told me. But Cheryl did not want to talk to me, and there was still a lot I didn't know. Everyone else had a theory about Cheryl. Maybe she was isolated, lonely, and not knowing what to do about it, just ended up pushing people further away. A lot of them felt sorry for her, no matter what she'd put them through. Are
1: you really taking, a photo in the are you taking us to court. No, no. No. Oh, you, as long as I well the red brick.
3: Cheryl's probably not the worst landlord ever. Cheryl's certainly not the only landlord to overstep when it comes to property inspections. There are worse offenders with longer rap sheets and more egregious charges. But even then, it's impossible to know. And that's sort of the point. Your landlord can know almost everything about you. Your age, credit history and criminal history, what you do for work. Meanwhile, you're likely to know next to nothing about them. There's no way to be sure just how many properties a landlord owns. No way to assess their track record as a landlord or any claims against them at the Tenancy Tribunal beyond the last three years. There's an elegant solution to all of this, of course. A landlord register. A public register of property ownership. One that sees through opaque company structures and trusts. Such ideas though, right now, they don't really help those currently in dispute with Cheryl. People like Gary the Builder. After 26 months, he got his money at a price. He'd started bankruptcy proceedings against Cheryl wanting the fact that she hadn't paid him to be publicly notified. There was an initial hearing, which was adjourned, and then, a few days before the new date, the 11 grand showed up in his account. Um, But I'm still about six grand down the hole, going through the lawyer process. The last time we spoke, Gary passed on some courthouse news. A registrar let him know that Cheryl Scott recently acquired a smartphone. He sounded incredulous when he told me this like something fundamental to the reality he knew had shifted. He's still weighing up further legal action to recover costs. As for Ollie and Scott, Cheryl signed off a recent letter to them with a warning. This will serve as evidence, she wrote, of the current situation. They are still living in Cheryl's flat,
1: though sometimes, Ollie says, it doesn't feel like living. Like the rental income from the house without someone actually living in it.
3: One final word. I wasn't the only person to get mail from Cheryl as we were wrapping up this episode. There was one more letter for Ollie too. Cheryl's offered to renew the lease. Despite the trespass order and the call to the police and the numerous alleged breaches of the RTA. She is putting the rent up by $45 a week. Ollie doesn't plan to stay. He's accepted that he probably won't get his bond back, but he's at peace with it. In fact, his move out plan factors it in. He'll move out sometime in January, he reckons, a few weeks before his lease expires. So Cheryl, if you're listening, I guess this is notice? So, have you got any more True Stories up your sleeve?
4: I mean, it would be fantastic to do some actual academic research on
0: ball <laughs> sex versus poo over time. It's important research it needs doing, but it won't be me. That's next time for our last story of this season. True Story is hosted by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. A huge and special thanks to this week's writer and presenter, Ethan Tilra. Te Tēnā e hoa. Tō kē our producer is Jen Black. Our executive producer is Chris Reid. Editing and mixing by Connor Scott. Music by Audio Network, Blue Dot Sessions and Connor Scott. Graphics by Catherine George. Thanks also to Daniel Fraser, Laura Heathcote, Nadia Tollich, Janine Fennick, Joanna Norris and Mark. No comment. Stevens. If you have a true story
2: or want to get in touch with us, it's super easy. Send us an email, truestory at
0: stuff.co.nz. Ka kite ano.
3: A man disappears, and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history, Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.